Sabres only Union Talk Radio show, and we are now in overtime. We're now in overtime. This is the second half of the program that we do that's only online. You're not going to hear this on the airwaves, folks. This is this is rarefied air that that we're in right now. Um, so. The first thing that we are ta- we are going to talk about, and uh, we're waiting, we're we're getting Connor Lewis in the Zoom right now. But while we do that, I'm going to go ahead and give you a give you kind of a breakdown of of what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory, um, or or a little bit of of explanation of what we're going to be talking about. So first, let's throw this tweet up from Eric London. Um says, quote, The UAW has rejected WSWS labor editor Jerry White, SEP's request, for press credentials to report on next week's UAW convention, a significant violation of the First Amendment. That's interesting. Labor reporters, even if you aren't a socialist, we ask you right to our, you know, whatever, uh, at UAW to demand reversal. Hashtag 1A. So that's interesting. Um, critical listeners will know that the United Auto Workers is not a government agency so it would not be definitionally a violation of the First Amendment whether we agree or disagree with it let's go to this next tweet by Matt Taibbi he says this is one of the most ridiculous things imaginable what a joke American organized labor is that is super bizarre. Um, and then somebody replied to him that said, have you ever read any of WSWS's labor, quote, reporting? They are not a serious news or journalistic organization. And Matt Taibbi said, so you deny people credentials because they disagree with you. And let's put that tweet up. And uh, the World Socialist website absolutely is a serious organization, even though I disagree with a lot of what they write. Which is bizarre. Just a bizarre thing to say. And then let's go to this last tweet here from a friend of the show, Connor Lewis, and then we'll bring Connor on uh, to talk about it. And this tweet is, uh, even if we conceded this is ridiculous, it's not, what's actually a joke is some dumbass dismissing over 55 million international unions and 14 million union members because some press coordinator denied a dude press credentials. And that's it. Obviously, Fucking A, right? I mean, seriously. 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 So we've got Connor on now. Connor Lewis is editor of the Labor Journalism Collective Strike Wave. He is a union staffer. He is a union member. Connor, welcome to the program. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we, you know, um, this, this started with the United Auto Workers rejecting the World Socialist website's request for press credentials. Um, and and Matt Taibbi's contention is that basically you should give press credentials to anybody who wants them, apparently, and also that the World Socialist website is a serious organization. Um, what would be your immediate thought to both of those contentions? You know, my first kind of question is, are they going to give um, press credentials to the Blaze? Are they going to give it to Breitbart? Are they going to give it to any 
variety of right-wing organizations. I mean, any reasonable mm-hmm. person understands that there's a limit to where you issue press credentials as, especially when you're talking about press credentials for a governing body of your organization that, you know, has a wider range uh, range of political organizations that are opposed to its existence. I mean, there is a reasonable spectrum. And I think that it's totally fine for a union to decide what is and isn't, you know, within that spectrum. And and now also, I, I went over this, but I, but I just want to get your, your take on it. Do, it. do you think this is a violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution? Absolutely not. I mean, it, it's an absurd <laughs> contention because, again, it's the same thing, you know, right wing, um, you know, I don't, I don't know a polite term to use for it, but, you know, a lot of right wing folks will say that, you know, Twitter censoring them or, you know, getting reported on Twitter is a violation of their um, First Amendment rights. And obviously that's not the case. It's a private organization. We can have a reasonable discussion about, you know, the degree to which they control content and information on those platforms. But private organizations do absolutely have the right under the First Amendment to control who has access. And, you know, it's just an absurd contention. Right. And now, so you said that obviously, you know, they've got the right to do this. It's not a violation of the First Amendment. And you will be limiting to a certain extent based on people that are fundamentally opposed to the existence of your organization, like right wing organizations like The Blaze and Breitbart. Um, Potentially, I mean, I don't, you know, we don't know if they've issued them press credentials. I think probably our assumption would be that they haven't. Mm-hmm. But if they did, they sh- uh, they should. They should not give those organizations press credentials because they're not serious about labor reporting. You know, um, and, and so when people are acting in bad faith. Right. And you like know that up front. You should take that into account. That's a reasonable thing to do. And we right. have had our own run ins with the World Socialist website. But, you know, for somebody listening that has never heard of the World Socialist website, which is probably going to be most of you um (laughs) they're going to hear that and they're going to say world socialist website aren't socialists like pro-worker aren't they you know pro-union um why would it be that a union doesn't want uh pro-worker people reporting on their convention so what is your take on the stance of of the world socialist website and some of their history and and some of why a union might not be interested in having them at their convention? Well, the World Socialist website is basically the organ of the Socialist Equality Party, which is a very particular Trotskyist uh, group. And I would say that most other groups that have some ideological connection to Trotskyism would agree that um, the Socialist Equality Party is, let's just say, out there on a number of uh, <laughs> a number of questions. And one of the things that they particularly take a hard line on is basically a very hostile uh, orientation toward um, the labor movement. And there are plenty of critiques to be made, uh, some of which are made by Trotsky, some of which are made by um, heck, even the average rank and file union member probably has right. their own, you know, their their own uh, thoughts on that. But basically, it's an instinctually and instinctively oppositional standpoint that assumes that 
all unions by virtue of basically being institutional and large are somehow critically flawed and need to be, um, you know, dramatically changed in ways that basically would more or less represent the destruction of those unions as organized entities. Uh, one of the big lines that they've taken is, you know, basically vote down every single contract, um, you know, form a rank and file committee. What that actually means is less fairly undefined. And, you know, they have a very particular orientation toward the institutional labor movement that I think can be fairly characterized as hostile. And that is and, and we're and I, I want to underscore the. The degree to which. It, it is not in. It, it is not strategically good, and it's not um, in good faith. They wrote articles during the first Bessemer campaign, encouraging workers to vote no against mm-hmm. the union at Amazon. They have encouraged workers to uh, rev- to to rescind their union membership, to stop paying dues. They've encouraged workers to uh, you know to be freeloaders in union workplaces and and to not organize with a uh, to, to not organize with a union these, these are not principled critiques of the labor movement of which there are many and which we have made uh, for reform these are people that are fundamentally opposed to any uh, and all organized labor even the Amazon labor union they have taken a critical stance towards and said that it has it, it's been already somehow <laughs> overtaken by uh, corporate interests I mean it's it's genuinely amazing because the Amazon labor union would presumably be basically what they would be advocating for rank and file uh, committees you know quote unquote that are not affiliated with the organized labor movement with the AFL and here they are. This is a successful implementation of what they would be saying people should do, and they're attacking it already. Right. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's really it, – it's, it's almost – it's almost funny that basically any degree of success seems to be suspicious to them. Right. If you have any, if you actually have organization and the ability to win, it's automatically suspicious. And they don't realistically have any answers or alternatives that are credible. Again, they'll they'll talk about forming a rank and file committee. What does that actually mean? What, what in practical terms, what does that mean? Right, and isn't what is it, it about voting for a union that automatically makes that organization suspect or you know, right. um, you know, not politically of use? Right. You can do a rank and file committee while an existing union is in the workplace, and in right. fact, I would argue it would, it would be, be easier, easier because yes. you'll have a contract, <laughs> you'll have stewards, you'll have just cause protections, so that when you are building this rank and file committee and you know doing your Trotsky study group. You'll you know you'll have less uh, hassle from the boss theoretically. So that you know the, when they were telling Amazon workers and Bessemer to vote no, uh, that really just stuck with me. Um, I have my own theories about this organization, but yeah, that that one really really stuck. Yeah, and, that, and you, oh no, you go know, ahead. That, I, I think that that's really kind of a an example of. Um, where they diverge from a lot of other Trotskyist groups and what makes them exceptional, because I think that a lot of other Trotskyist groups would say exactly the same thing. Mm. You don't want to throw out, you know, whether or not they have critiques of institutional labor or collective bargaining or agreements or whatever. You don't want to throw that out. 
you can do that and then also have your rank and file committee to push right. for more. Um, and that's, I think, where the key divergence is and what makes them, um, again, I'm just going to say unique. Right. Uh, and, out and, of touch, perhaps. And, and yeah, Reckless Future in the chat said, I had been wondering what the deal with Trots was. And I, and I guess we do want to delineate at least the critique of the World Socialist website with critiques of Trotskyism in general, because there are Trotskyist groups that are are, are not going to tell you to burn your union card and to vote no in a union election. <laughs> right. I, and I think yeah. there are groups and individuals of various leftist persuasions, whether they be Trotskyist or other types of Marxist or anarchist or whatever that may be, there are folks with pretty diverse viewpoints who are acting in good faith, who you know share certain core values, people that we would consider you know comrades who are mm-hmm. fighting for the same things, even if we don't always you know uh, have the same ideas about how to do that or what it looks like. Uh, and I think, like I know on this show, we've always tried to be pretty non-sectarian and, and be mm-hmm. open to that. Mm-hmm. That there are going to be folks who are not socialists, who are just kind of vaguely progressive, who are with us. There are folks who are die-hard, uh, you know, Marxists for for many years who are going to be with us, and everything in between. Uh, so yeah, I, I I just you know I'm kind of seconding that Jacob that I I don't want it to be perceived that we're we're trashing. Um, an entire ideology uh it's this one particular organization who mysteriously has uh significant resources despite uh, no support yeah. from uh, yeah <laughs> from working people very very few rank and file members out there that you right. can ever find but they uh somehow are on the scene of every picket just about and right. uh their website yeah. uh is pretty much near the top of search engine results so I just I have a lot of questions about how that works out, and um, I'll just say if I were a federal agent trying to devise a psyop, it might look something like that. Not saying that's what it is, but like I, you know, if I'm just putting myself in that headspace, it might look something like this. Yeah, I think that there's. And I think that the point about trying to differentiate between them and, you know, there's a wide range of ideological currents. And I will say that, you know, one of, I think, the key political contributions of kind of, you know, the Trotskyist tradition to talking about labor is, and there are a lot of, there's a wide range of this and people have a very visceral reaction. But if you actually go back and read Kim Moody's rank and file strategy, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And even if you don't agree with it entirely, I would say any person that is looking at the labor movement, looking to revitalize the labor movement, at least has to seriously engage with that. You can't just dismiss it. Um, And so I'd say that, you know, it's really important to distinguish these really fringe groups that may have originated in a particular ideological tradition, whether it's, you know, Revcom or, um, you know, WSWS from those traditions themselves um and you know i think that i'll just i will say that i i have a lot of questions about wswf um the same way you know i have a lot of questions about groups like revcom and how they do seem to be i've had my own run-ins with revcom showing up at labor actions and um you know i just i have questions 
I'll leave it. Yeah, at that. And, and and well, let's you know. The, so Matt Taibbi's response to this is that the World Socialist website is a serious organization, and so I I want to go over just a bit of of. Like so, just some factual errors that they have made in their reporting about us. Um, they said that I'm an AFL-CIO staffer, which I'm not. Uh, they were implying that I got big money from the AFL-CIO to to basically to uh, you know be a propagandist for them. I don't take any money from this program. The money that we raise for this program goes directly to radio stations to be on the air. Um, I do it totally in volunteer, and uh, I'm a rank-and-file union member, uh, and I've been elected to the Labor Council, and all of the work that I do associated with that, I take vacation time for it if I have to, if I have to take off work. I take my own annual leave, right? And so that really frustrated me. They also said I'm a DSA representative. I'm not even a member of DSA. And, and so, you know, they're, they're willing to just fabricate things that uh, they're they're willing to just fabricate facts in their reporting based on nothing. And if they're willing to do that for it, puts the rest of their the rest right. of their thing in in uh, question. Yeah. I mean, if you're willing to to go to that extent to make up shit about a union guy who has a radio show in North Alabama, you know that makes me question the credibility of all of your coverage. Mm-hmm. And and the sad thing is, if you are looking for socialist news and, and analysis, it's going to be one of the first places you find. I right. found it probably 15, 20, you know, years and years ago when I was first really getting into politics. My mom found it when she was looking for some of my reporting on the Warrior Met strike. And she was like, Jake, what is this? And so I had to spend 15 <laughs> minutes on the phone with my mom explaining to her what <laughs> these crazy people were doing. <laughs> and so what, what is your experience? Like, what, when you saw Taibi talk about this is a serious organization, what are some of the things that went through your mind? Well, I'm wondering, if, um, I'm wondering how Matt Taibi defines serious mm. and um, some serious questions about his just general judgment. You know, aside from aside from his judgment about WSWS, I think that one of the things that you see in a lot of and Matt Taibbi is in kind of this, um, you know, sphere of kind of a rock era, kind of like civil libertarians that, um, you know, kind of passed for what was the public left at that time. Right. And I think that you've really seen a lot of the limits of their political viewpoints over the past decade, because they really don't have a lot to offer except for um, yelling a lot about a very kind of eclectic, um, politically eclectic group of things. And um, this kind of maximalist view of civil uh, civil libertarianism that um, I would throw Glenn Greenwald into that camp. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of overlap there. So, you know, I think that to them, his kind of knee-jerk reflexive defense of WSWS says a lot about his own politics and the drawbacks of them, um, as well as, I think, um, again, well, some of his judgment. But as far as WSWS being a serious organization, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I've read every single thing that they've written, and I'm sure that if you really dug, you could probably find something that was interesting, that wasn't, you know, um, wasn't totally out there that right. might be, you know, insightful or, you know, 
have something to offer. I but found on the whole. Yeah. I, I'll say I found some articles from them where like ninety percent of it pretty solid. Right. Then you get mm-hmm. to the end, and then there's something like totally batshit thrown in. Right. Um, and that's the frustrating thing is you know even when there is solid reporting, they always have to go back to the line. They right. always have to bring it back to the line and the line that they're trying to push. Um, and you know that's relative that's to an extent to be expected but i think it shows the degree to which that line is actually divorced from what they're talking about when it's such a jarring here's what we're laying out and then right back to that line and it just seems like it could be whiplash um yes i think that realistically aside from operating this website you really can't point to anything that they've done um you can't point to any concrete political successes you can't uh, point to any kind of, you know, concrete organization. You can't point to chapters. You can't point to really anything except for running this website, publishing books. Um, and, you know, you could have a discussion about the value of that politically, but I think it does tell you something about the seriousness of the organization that there's really not a lot that you can point to outside of, again, they got a website and some of them have published some books. Right. And, you know, it's not like they just want to be a journalism outfit. They are an activist organization. It's not like Jacobin. Uh, Jacobin is explicitly and only uh, a media outfit. Uh, they are associated, you know, in in the popular view with DSA, and and I think rightfully so. Um, but. Jacobin, at, at, as a thing, is a media institution. The World Socialist website is explicitly an organ of the Socialist Equality Party. And at the end of every labor article, they're always calling for these rank-and-file committees or whatever, and they have nothing to show for it. They, right. they, uh, it was, so it would be one thing if there was nothing to show for it because they're just a media outfit. But they're not, and they don't want to be. Or they, they pretend that, that they don't, you know, maybe, may, you know, I think Adam and Adam and I might contend that that they don't actually want to be <laughs> because potentially they're a psyop. But uh, but let's say that they do want to be a serious force and 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 actually create these work and file committees. Well, they haven't. There's nowhere mm-hmm. they they can't even they do not even point to any successes of their quote unquote rank and file committees. The industrial and workers he, of the world is a is is definitely a more a more you know uh, they try to be a more radical a more militant union and they have lots of critiques and I think some of them go a bit too far in their critiques of the uh, of the institutional labor movement but they have successes that they can point to they have campaigns that they can point to they have public things that they point to all the time all the time and there's nothing mm-hmm. nothing. For the and World I Socialist that, website or the Socialist Equality Party? Yeah, you know, I think that it's, I mean, realistically, if we're just kind of playing this out, even if someone read an article, saw this call for a ranking file uh, committee and thought, yeah, you know, that that sounds interesting. Um, I'm going to guess that a couple of phone calls with um, core SEP members probably, probably scares them off. <laughs> I mean, Adam has a story about that himself. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, wanna... that's literally happened to me <laughs> as a young lefty who was trying to you know find my way in the world especially in alabama where obviously i didn't have a lot of local contacts so yeah been there done that um one thing that you mentioned though about matt taibbi and like sort of the 
there's this I don't, factions, maybe not the right word for it, but there's like a grouping of folks. I, I think Glenn Greenwald. That's who came to my mind too. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some overlap there, but I think it it does show the limits of their politics, as you said, and a kind of. It seems they're divorced from actual materialist analysis of the world and divorced from labor, both the movement of labor, the institutions inside that movement, uh, and just labor in general as a concept. That's what I am picking up. And and the thing <clears throat> is, I'm really disappointed because uh, I was always a big fan of Matt's writing. I think as a writer, he is very talented. Um, mm. And I used to you know religiously read his stuff in The Rolling Stone, uh, but the fact that you would, you know, maybe it was just a, an offhand tweet. He didn't mean much by it. But, you know, like you said, to dismiss literally millions of people uh, over something this petty, uh, it, it just it does seem revealing of kind of a an emptiness inside his viewpoints. And, you know, the individualism of these politics, I think, is mm. really Ooh, yeah. where it falls. Um, because yeah, the just intense individualism of this politics, they can't cope with the idea of any kind of collective project because mm-hmm. any kind of collective project, uh, it, it involves setting aside your own, you know, priorities and working with a group and, you know, to actually trying to build some kind of collective consensus. And I honestly think that whether it's a personality thing, whether it's a principal political viewpoint, um, folks like Taibbi, like, uh, uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald, et cetera, they just can't cope with that. There's yeah. something that they just can't deal with there. And so I think that they're always going to struggle with the idea of unions. I, even if they kind of in the abstract think, okay, yeah, unions are good. I think that they're always really going to struggle with them. Yep. I agree. Uh, Connor, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about this. Um, yeah, as it always, was really very frustrating. So, yeah. no, always <laughs> so, happy to yeah. be here. All right, brother. Talk soon. All right, thanks. All right, bye. Uh, we're going to be talking here in about fifteen minutes with David Griscom about the limits of climate policy. But first, we wanted to get to this uh, just a little bit more, a little bit more less substantive stuff before we get into some nitty gritty things. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we critiqued Tim Pool, um, and last week we dropped the clip, and his fans were not happy, <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh, so I wanted to take a little bit of time to address some of those critiques. First, though, let's let's quickly I want to like let's let's quickly review his bad take about unions and our argument for why his take is bad. To set the clip up, Ben is making the point, Ben Burgess is making the point that if you care about free speech, you should be incredibly in favor of unions. Why? Because if you and your coworkers are not unionized, if you have not used your leverage to secure a contract, you are an at-will employee, meaning your boss can fire you for any reason or no reason at all, including because they don't like your speech, and they often do. Workplaces are where people spend most of their waking lives, and yet we are less free than anywhere. We are less free 
in the places that we spend most of our waking lives than we are anywhere else. So one of the first things that workers will do when they unionize is fight for a clause in their contract that lays out a process for just cause and progressive discipline and termination. Meaning, you have due process. If your boss wants to terminate you or discipline you, it has to be related to your performance, not because your boss is having a bad day. And that's clearly a win for free speech because the biggest threat to free speech in this country that most people have, generally speaking, does not come from the government, at least not at this moment, and nor does it come from what's happening on Facebook and Twitter. And this is not to discount those things, right? And I think I tend to be, I tend to have a certain amount of sympathy, like we were talking about, uh, uh, to some of these civil libertarian positions about free speech. Uh, I tend to be a bit open to that. Uh, and a bit more open maybe about what we should allow on platforms than, than some other people. And I think that the control, and I think this is something that a lot of people will agree with, the control that these private and unaccountable corporations have over what has become de facto the public square is bad. And I think that there are certainly conversations to be had about that, and there are serious conversations, and I'm not discounting those in any way. But getting banned on Twitter is not, is simply Factually, as a fact of the matter, in reality, it is not the biggest threat that a working person has to their ability to speak freely. It's simply not. What is it? It is getting fired, getting a demotion, getting their hours cut, facing retaliation on the job. These are the things that materially affect working people that affect their very ability to eat and survive, and it happens every single day. Which is why workers organizing is such a big deal if you genuinely care about the ability of regular working people to speak freely. If that's what you want, then you want to be able to insulate working people from the tyranny that the boss has over what they can say at and outside of work. But Tim disagreed with that. So let's see why. Have you ever been in a union? Just side question. Yeah. Which one? When? Um, I was in a couple. I've been in the. Uh, Which I've one? The U- I've been in the UFCW and uh, when I was uh, working at Meyer in Michigan. Um, and no, uh, accepted. Uh, I didn't believe you. I, I, I couldn't imagine, based on what you'd said, that'd been true. Because I've been in two unions. I was in the transport workers union, and I worked at a, a, a grocery store as well, which also had a grocery workers union. And they were so corrupt that I was like, the statement you made is just like. A, a, like your perspective, I can respect. That's coming from you, but it's like a blanket subjective perspective. But I don't want to. Not at all subjective. I don't want to. I don't want to have an argument about union. However corrupt that union might have been that you were part of. Two of them. If you had been uh, accused of an infraction, subject to disciplinary disciplinary process, then you would have had the option of having them represent you in that process. That Wrong. Is, okay. Bro. So I, I don't want to get into an argument about unions. Other than to say, like, your subjective perspective... It's it's not subjective. It's a fact that the effect of unions is to give you due process. And sometimes they don't because humans are fallible. But I digress. Okay, but you can say the same thing about having trial by jury that, like, sometimes it's not a good due process. So so the issue is... Still a due process. Yeah, so um, Tim's arguments were, one, I've been in unions, didn't like them. Two, your perspective is subjective, and three, humans are fallible. And and we just frankly did not find these arguments convincing. We go over it more in depth in, in, in the first video, but he says that Ben's perspective is subjective, but he did not base 
his argument entirely on his experience. Ben didn't. Ben Burgess based it on material realities. The leverage that workers get when, when they unionize, the language that are in their contracts, where Poole's argument is entirely subjective. It is entirely based on his experience. Right. You can actually point to the law right. and the responsibility of a labor union to represent its members uh, and how the failure to do so can result in a DFR charge. That's real. Like That's not a subjective statement. That's that's factual. Exactly. Exactly. It, it And it's not it's not subjective. And so just like last time, we aren't going to say, also, you know, speaking to his point that humans are fallible, and so sometimes you're not going to get a perfect execution of what Ben is talking about every single time. That's true. Just like last time, we are not here to argue that every single union, every single time, behaves perfectly. But the fact remains that union workers are less likely, less likely, to be disciplined or fired for nonsense reasons. And it's, and it's really as simple as that, as far as the free speech argument goes. It is really as simple as that. So there's the recap in about five minutes. Let's go through some of the comments on the video. Um, <laughs> the first one from uh, JSTDoIt99 says, Have you ever been in a union? I have most of, most of my life. I'm very sad that young people are so stupid. Now, several of the people that saw that video um, and not our other work, uh, several people saw that video and not our other work. And so, you know, that's fine. You're not going to know our background. But we did mention Adam's union work. If you actually listen to the video, we did mention Adam's work for a teacher's union. And so, but uh, but yes, both of us have been in and very much are currently in unions. <laughs> I, I'm a member of the American Federation of Government Employees. I'm an assistant vice president of my local. And I'm secretary treasurer of the Labor Council, which is the regional federation of unions in the area. I'm also a member of the Industrial Workers of the World. Adam is currently a union stagehand, a member of the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees. He was formerly a member of the Alabama Teachers Union, the Alabama Education Association, and after after that, he was a staffer for the AEA. So Where I was also a member of the National Staff Organization, the union which represents NEA employees and NEA affiliate employees, right. and where I was also uh, elected to serve as an executive board member, as well as on the bargaining team. Uh, when I was a member of AEA, I was also elected to be a delegate at the state and national level, uh, as well as local board of directors. And, and you know we could both go on, but yes, yeah. we've both very much been in unions. I've I've spent the last decade of my life uh, in the labor movement. Yes, and beyond our individual involvement in unions, uh, we are very much, very much uh, <laughs> in contact with people in unions, and we talk to them all the time. At the least time. once a week. At least, yeah, <laughs> at least once a week. But beyond that, for both of us. Uh, so let's go to the next one. Now that we've 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 put our uh, what what's standpoint epistemology, we, we've done a little bit yeah, of that. We got to flash our credentials. Yeah, flash our credentials. Okay. So the next one comes from Timothy Larson. Free speech is an issue in the workplace and not on Twitter. I'm a union worker. You are not. 
We are. Very few people are scared to speak out. This is not a problem at all. People speak out all the time with no repercussions. I'm a Democratic union worker, and you two are so far from reality, and it shows. You're trying to speak for people you know nothing about. I have great pay and benefits and a great 401k. Your immaturity on policy and politics is scaring me, and you're speaking for a workforce you know nothing about. I get two raises a year because we spoke out and came together with no repercussions. Well, good for you. Thank you for making our point. Right. I mean, good for you for for coming together, for speaking out, for getting a raise. You're exactly the person that we're talking about. You don't have a problem because you and your coworkers organized. And we're incredibly glad to hear it. And Timothy Larson, if you want to call into the show and tell us more about it, we would welcome it. But you are not the per you you're not the people that we're speaking about. Most workers do not have unions in their workplace. Most workers are not organized into unions, and so they don't have the protections that you have and that I have and that Adam has. They don't have those protections, and we want everyone to have those protections, and those protections are what make you able to speak out freely without repercussions, and we want to make everybody have that, and Tim doesn't. Right, and and that's... That's your experience. That uh, I mean, to subjective. Uh, that is your subjective experience in your workplace. Uh, but I assure you, you talk to workers, many workers across various industries, know that what they say, both on the job and outside of work, both online and in real life, can have repercussions. Right. On the job site. Right. If you don't believe me. Go on Facebook and post about your company. Post about your boss. Well, now, you won't have a problem because you're in a union like we're advocating for, and you've got these just cause protections in your contract, presumably, and so you're not going to have that repercussion. But anybody else... Even even in unionized industries, it's still a concern. Right. It's still still a factor that you have to factor in, uh, and retaliation can still happen. I mean, teachers, for example... Teachers have to be extremely careful about what they say outside of work, what they post on social media, um, both in terms of their politics, their personal beliefs, their religious beliefs, uh, their personal activities. So if you are a rank-and-file teacher, even with a union, you right. still have to tread carefully uh, because your, your picture on Facebook of you enjoying a adult beverage yeah. could be misconstrued as uh, you – being immoral or you know your facebook or twitter post about black lives matter could absolutely result in you being called into the principal's office now hopefully you have a union rep and you can say hey i want my rep here if we're going to have this meeting and then you can go from there but come on now i timothy good on you and your co-workers for organizing and fighting the good fight and getting that pay raise but uh solidarity is about understanding everyone else in understanding that we're while we're all sharing certain struggles we face our own unique struggles as well and it's important that we have each other's backs yep hambone says your uh says you want freedom of speech at work start your own business freedom of speech protects you from the government um and hambone you're thinking of the first amendment that protects you from the government. But freedom of speech is a broader value that we can have more or less of in political and, yes, economic arenas like the workplace, where we spend most of our waking lives. And no, I don't think 
free speech should be reserved for the boss. Yeah, what a what a <clears throat> great solution. Literally everyone who wants freedom of speech should just have to start their own business. Yeah. Think it through. Francisco Martinez says unions can crush a member's free speech too. And to that we say, yes, but unlike your employer, that's illegal. It is not illegal for your uh, for your employer to crush your free speech, but it is illegal for your union to crush your, inspe- your free speech. Unlike your employer, you have recourse if your union illegitimately stifles your speech. First, through internal processes with your coworkers that you can get addressed. And then, if you can't resolve it, you can actually make a complaint with the Department of Labor because there is a union member's bill of rights that has been codified into law that gives you free speech within your union and the the uh, the right to speak freely at union meetings about your union uh, at work and outside of work. Right. And and we've talked a lot on this show about how unions, some are more democratic than others. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can show up to a meeting and conceivably, especially if you know little Robert's rules, get on the agenda. You can take <clears throat> the floor. You can yep. take the mic. You can say your piece. Uh, you might get booed. You might get cheered. Uh, you might get a second. You might not. I mean, that's that's the messiness of democracy. Uh, and to the extent that your union is not democratic, well, there's something to work on uh, right. for one thing. Right. But as you laid out, there are actual uh, – there's a process in place in every union for dealing with this, and when that does not work, you actually can go legal with it. So, yep. sorry. Yes, I, I suppose, I mean, it's Francisco, it, it's a possible thing, but it's, it's not comparable. It is not a response to our argument. Ubiquitous says, oh, the at-will model for small businesses came about precisely because unions overextended. If you're Wrong. talking about a business under 25 people, then the community becomes rather tight-knit. If somebody, if someone is pulling their weight, then it is counterproductive for a boss to fire their employees. If it oh, un- because bosses are only going to do things right. that are productive. They would never right. act irrationally. We've got somebody who has uh, the workplace understander has logged on. If an unresolvable conflict comes up, then it is a case where the 1 versus 24 would lose with or without a union. Thus, that employee can leave before things get out of hand. The departure should give reason on management to consider the costs. Employees have business knowledge and loss thereof cost the business the means of production. The small business nature provides a union by virtue <laughs> of tight-knit community. Oh, my God. It is when business gets large enough for management to lose uh, the call to census where there is a practical call for a union. At will Brother, been, get get the yeah. boot out of your mouth. Come on, man. This is the workplace understander has logged on. At will has been the standard just for the record before, during, and after unions. At will was the standard. And no, that is not an accurate description of working for a small business. God, no. Um, I mean, maybe it small was. Small business tyrant is, uh, is a word for a reason. I mean, and. Hey, maybe that's been your experience in a small family business. And if so, good for you. But that is certainly not the case for many other folks. Uh, and and please, I, I think uh, it doesn't take much to understand that bosses do not always act rationally. They don't even always act in the best interest of their profit margins, no. either certainly not in the long term, Look but at even Warrior in the short Met. term. Look at Warrior Met. 
Look at Warrior Matt. Um, let's go to Mushroom LW. Mushroom LW says, strongly disagree. Let's just say there's a bolt tightening union and a screw tightening union. I'm in the bolt tightening union. If I know how to use a screwdriver, can I grab a screwdriver and tighten a screw that needs to be tightened and I know how to do it? My experience tells me no. You will be punished for doing the wrong union job on a free market model. You can develop multiple skills and become valuable to an employer and gain raises faster than a union model. Uh, I think they meant union model. But that being said, in a free market, you should be allowed to unionize. I just believe at a single company, I should not be stripped of my freedom to not join a union to get that same job. I should be free to choose which model I prefer. Now, here, we're moving a bit away from free speech and and into other aspects of unions. But on this, there are two things to say. Unions do have job classifications, and that is good. It is good for people to do their job and not give labor to the company for free. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to have job descriptions and to not give the money free labor. Okay? That's a good thing. And the workers, the workers are the ones that put those job classifications in there. So if you want to have a more wandering type of job classification, guess what you can do? You can put that in your job description. Also, you should not be free to get the union benefits without paying union dues. That is that is being a freeloader. If you uh, now you are obviously free to work in a non-union workplace, you can go work at the Hyundai facility in Alabama where they use child labor and have amputation hazards. If you want, there's no union there. Go work there. If you don't like unions. Go work there instead of working in a union workplace, getting union wages, union health care, union benefits, union job protections, and not paying union dues. You freeloader. Go work somewhere else. Go work somewhere else. Right. And also, one more thing on that, trade unions... Train in much more of the way, uh, much more of a tradesman type fashion than non-union construction companies. If you... Come up in a trade union apprenticeship, like the iron workers, the electrical workers, pipe fitters, steam fitters, all of these, all of these unions, these trade unions, they are going to give you real quality collegiate level training and education about how to do your craft in a much more comprehensive way than you're going to get on the job site in a non-union construction company. Because they just want you to learn the one task to do and then, um, and then they will pay you less. And they'll pay you less. And I, I do have some sense of kind of what they're they're hitting at. Like I, some, you know, something I experience uh, on the job with IATSE Local 900. We have different positions. If I'm there as a stagehand uh, and not a loader, mm-hmm. my job is to be a stagehand, not to load and unload the truck. That means I don't get on the truck. That's a different job. That's a different pay scale. That's different people on the schedule. That's a different crew. I mean, and those things are there for reasons. Right. Reasons being different job descriptions, different pay rates, uh, and safety. Right. Right? I mean, that's something to consider that, because I've heard that complaint before. I've even heard that complaint, you know, on the job there Hmm. uh, from folks who are like, oh, yeah, these these union rules, you know, Mm. sometimes kind of get in the way, huh? Well, not really. 
Right. Uh, on the balance, I'd much prefer it be that way than the chaotic, loosey-goosey, non-union right. work environment where folks are jumping in between departments. Uh, folks are doing work that they're not trained to do. Um, folks are doing work that they're not really being compensated to do. So personally, I'll take that any day of the week, even if it means, hey, I have to stand here and wait for the the appropriate personnel to do this position, do this job. That means I have to stand by for three minutes and wait for them to show up or whatever. Hey, good. That's good. I'll take it. Yep, exactly. Let's hit a couple of funny ones before we get to David Griscom. I think we've got him in the Zoom, so we're going to run through these pretty fast. Jason Larson says, I regret clicking on the end increasing its view count. As a white cis male, I am sorry. Not for being white and straight, though. No one's asking you to be sorry for being white or straight, but uh, thanks for clicking on the video anyway. Thank you for your contribution. Moist Potato says, just about anybody can make a podcast these days, huh? This actually made me lose brain cells. <laughs> Buddy, I got news for you. We're on the damn radio, okay? We're on three FM radio stations, so get your facts straight. <laughs> and they don't just let anybody get on the radio. That's true. But, yeah, anyone can start a podcast. Uh, I mean, clearly, if you're a Tim Pool fan. <laughs> Fizz Graffiti says, maybe I'm not woke enough, but how is anyone supposed to get past these visuals and pay attention to the points these two are trying to make? Skinny tie, short sleeve polka dot shirt, and aviator glasses? WTF? Big ass red headphones? So many distractions not everyone is meant to be on camera and that's all right that's why god invented the radio does everyone have to be a video star for crying out loud think about your audience why make them suffer the cringe um and i appreciate your contribution fizz graffiti uh that <laughs> it's a bizarre contribution uh that tie that i was wearing that day and i actually i wore this one just for you these the flower tie that i've got on i wore it just for you but the tie that i had on that day was actually uh a great uncle's tie like that is literally a tie from the 60s like that was an actually an old man tie and uh so very much not a a hip woke fashion statement yeah i i i'm sorry but these folks need to stop saying the word woke yes um, I, I don't I, it just grates on me at this point to where it, they have so overused it they, it's so played out um, I, I just don't understand it how, how is uh, how's wokeness related to what I'm wearing what you wore that day wearing a, wearing a, a button down shirt and a tie is woke now is it how do you dress unwoke Mr. Graffiti, please, please comment. Let us know. How do we dress unwoke? I'd like to know. Yeah, I'm not going to follow your advice, but I, I would be curious to know what it is. Yeah, that was that was bananas. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm just going to say this. I know we've got some folks listening um, who tend to be our, our very loyal listeners and... Oh, Please but we're know. gonna we're gonna get some other folks uh, listening to this oh, when I'm we sure. drop it in as a clip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know that's that's what I was gonna say. Like, y'all really, we really, really do appreciate y'all, um, the folks who who tune in, the folks who participate, uh, <clears throat> who give us good feedback, who 
you know, give us good critiques. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really do appreciate that, and and I, I I love the you know little community that's kind of around this show, yep. and it's it's definitely it's interesting how a video that name drops someone like Tim Pool will get you know ten times the number of views and engagement uh, versus stuff that we're doing that's like you know. In my opinion, pretty legit journalism, yeah, uh, or at the very least, like legitimate well, discussion of legitimate issues that impact people. Yeah, lives. and relaying legitimate journalism. Right. I don't know and, that and you know interviewing <coughs> really important right. people. Um, yeah. you know, people who are organizing, people who are writing important work, people who have uh, been on strike, people who are engaged in struggles in our society. So yeah, I mean that's the that's I guess the frustrating thing about this whole like game. Uh, right. of, of media in the internet age, um, you know, gaming the algorithm, trying to get clicks and engagement and all that. Um, so all that to say, those of you who uh, who listen on a regular basis, who certainly those who contribute, uh, what, however you contribute, whether you just share our stuff or you donate every month or however you're doing it, it really does mean a lot and we appreciate it. Because we're not, um, we're not able to use billionaire money right. to finance this show. <laughs> uh, we're not making any money off this show. We're lucky if we break even every month. Yeah, um, and that's the only reason we we're able to is because of you know folks like y'all who who contribute and and some of the organizations who do sponsor uh, the show. So. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. But yeah. yeah, we definitely appreciate Temple, that. Temple, you can get fucked. Yeah, um, Champagne Humanist says that we both look ready to go downtown, but to different clubs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tend to stick with like the union T-shirt or the uh, organization T-shirt. Rep a different group every weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. You go for the more professional well, news I'll mix, anchor I'm, kind well, of look. I, but yeah, you do mix it I, up sometimes. I mix it up sometimes. It, it just depends on if I have enough time to like take a shower in the morning. Yeah, that's true. It, <laughs> so every time you see me in a t-shirt and a hat, just know that I am disgusting. <laughs> We're in separate parts of the building right, here, right. so, so he doesn't I, have I to can't smell, smell them in here. Yeah. All right, have we got Griscom in the Zoom? Uh, let's see here. We do, yes. All right, all right. So... David Griscom is host of Left Reckoning, and also recently a new contributed con, a new contributor to Jacobin Magazine. His recent article, "Texas Shows the Pitfalls of Liberal Climate Politics," and we are uh, really excited to break this down with him. Uh, David Griscom, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Hey, y'all! I'm always happy to be hanging out with y'all. Always happy to have you. So. Um yeah, let's talk about this this article. What was the what what was the um what was the impetus for this? Uh you know, what was the thing that spurred you to to write this article? Okay, well, I'll try to keep it my head straight cuz I will say the visuals are very distracting and particular your skinny ties making it very difficult <laughs> for me to think straight. It's uh, very and his very woke ties. And Adam's woke headphones. Yeah. Um, I yeah. apologize about the headphones. <laughs> it's the best we can do. Oh lord. Um yeah, I mean like for me I, I mean obviously I've been following climate politics for a good while. Um I will admit that I think like a lot of leftists I always sort of figure it's like let's advocate for the people to get in power to implement it and I hadn't thought too too much about what that actually was going to look like 
And over the past couple of years, I've started to get um, a little bit nervous about, you know, a lot of the kind of dominant narratives on the green left. Um, but for me, and this is not to come at AOC or anything, I went to a big Green New Deal rally here in Austin. And it was a really well done rally. Uh, they had, you know, people from the Texas uh, Climate Jobs Project there talking about, you know, the need for union push in the movement. Um, hundreds of people were there. It was a really successful event. And AOC came up and she gave a really great speech. And then, though, towards the end, she started going a little bit off the cuff and started talking about how, you know, we need to be learning um, from other systems and how what we really need to be doing is maybe learning from the Puerto Rican model and uh, decentralizing our grid and basically doing like residential solar because like the system will never work for us. And for me, I hear that as like a socialist and somebody who wants to build big, powerful industrial um, and democratically controlled power in this country, you know, my heart stopped a little bit um, because I realized that this is the kind of thinking that like, even though, yeah, it might seem like, you know, this is sort of moving the ball forward. This is the kind of, you know, neoliberal hellscape that they already are trying to build. Um, you know, here in Texas, we have one of the most decentralized systems. And, you know, a few things that have been worrying me has been that, you know, ever since we've seen these grid failures, we've seen this massive explosion in residential solar. And there's nothing necessarily wrong. Uh, with that, right, I can understand as an individual, you say, I want to make sure I have power in moments when the grid right. fails me. Mm -hmm. um, but this is an individual um, solution to a collective problem. And, you know, especially in a state like Texas, I do worry about, um, you know, movements to try to decouple wealthy communities in particular um, from the state grid, leaving the rest of us with very expensive intermittent power um, and good, clean, beautiful, sweet power for, you know, wealthy folks in the suburbs. So that was, um, you know, what has sort of like started me really spending a lot of time reading um, and, and, and thinking and talking to excellent people, um, you know, on the left, people like Matt Huber, reading people like Fred Stafford, talking to people like Lee Phillips, um, because I, I think that we really need to sort of reorient our climate politics um, towards labor, because I think that even though there's been overtures there, um, I don't think that that commitment has been as as serious and rooted as it needs to be. Right, right, and that's. I I think that that is that is a, a really interesting. Um, it's really interesting that Texas has begun implementing some of this decentralized, uh, decentralized stuff, and that has actually been the cause of of a significant amount of issues over there in Texas, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Texas is not the only state that um, has basically, um, you know, split up their power system and created, you know, got a lot of deregulated their power industry. California and New York um, also have had, like, massive deregulation. But Texas, you know, as is our nature, just sort of sprinted ahead of everybody else. And we have, like, an absolutely bizarro system here where it's a, effectively is a constant um, you know, auction house for power. So you do have competing power companies for a lot of people. Now, if you're in a city like Austin, we have one provider and that's, that, that's, you know, the public utility. Um, but they're all on the same grid, which, which is always sort of bidding up and bidding down the price of the electricity, which means in a crisis like the, the winter storm, uh, Yuri, or even hell last week, um, we were getting messages saying, you know, you need to keep your AC up at 78 degrees, you know, don't wash your clothes. Um, because there was a lot of worries that the power system was going to fail again then. So um, it's not good and, when it's hot or cold. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, well, it doesn't work. And the price, 
effectively it skyrockets and you know people are still dealing with the fallout of that i mean people got bills right. for literally thousands of dollars after the winter storm um so we have just like this hyper marketized uh, grid here and i mean you know there's a few different threads we can get into um I, I also get frustrated when I talk about the grid. It's like everyone's favorite thing to talk about is the fact that Texas is not, you know, plugged into the national grid. Certainly a problem and an issue. I'm not saying that it's not, but like that ends up dominating so much of the conversation because it is so uniquely Texan to be like, we're going to have our own grid and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that people do miss sometimes. I think the real fundamental failure, which is that we have a hyper-marketized grid. So, you know, to give an example of why that's a problem, not only in the fact that people get incredibly high electricity bills when, you know, you know, when there's crisis moments, um, is also about weatherization. So after the the failures, after Winter Storm Uri, um, people were arguing, and as politics is wont to do now, it immediately devolves into a culture war. Right wing is blaming the Green New Deal and wind and solar, which was absolute bs and you know liberals and and the lefts were noting that no it was actually natural gas pipelines um that failed and that's all well and good and true um but you need to do a little bit more investigation of realize why they failed it's not that the owners of those pipelines were stupid right and they just like never thought that it was going to get cold no they knew they have had models for a long time that said you know we will uh, you know rarely but every once in a while get these storms that get cold enough and are cold long enough that some of these pipelines will fail but they made the financial decision that it will cost them more money to weatherize those systems um than um they would gain from doing so and if your if your pipeline actually is successful and doesn't fail at that moment it's like holding a lottery ticket it's like one of the quotes mm-hmm. uh, one of these providers um you know had which is like they made incredible amounts of money um you know and just politically like everyone knows uh where greg abbott and the texas gop swear stands on this but just to put some numbers on it after the failure um, when it became very clear that abbott wasn't really going to do any kind of significant reform to push in on this he got a million dollars in a week $11 million, Lord, uh, I don't want to understate that $11 million um, from, you know, private power corporations. So, you know, there's there's like fundamental issues to this grid. And the main problem is that it is this has this responsibility not to provide power. That's just like a that's like a unintended consequence, frankly, for a lot of these people. Um, it's to make profit. And that is a, a desire that oftentimes goes against um, the needs of the people in the sense of like having power that doesn't go off or the needs of the people of making sure that they can afford the electricity bills. Right, right. And, you know, the how is it that how is it that it that what what has Texas uh, Texans response to this been with with the, uh, you know, the obvious conflict of interest that um you know these people have had and and the obvious dereliction of duty that that these private owners of this um you know decentralized power sources um have had i mean um, politically not too much so they did pass a bill requiring um these providers to weatherize their natural gas pipelines um, but it has no enforcement mechanism and like the date that they need to do that is so often in the future. It's effectively toothless, symbolic stuff. I mean, Beto and the, the Texas Democrats, um, you know, make a big deal about how like, you know, just hitting 
Abbott and the Republican Party on the fact that they're responsible, um, you know, for the failures, which I think is certainly true because they created that system um, and they uphold that system and they protect that system. Um, but, you know, there has been, at least from my perspective, like enough of hitting on to like what we need to be doing and like what we really need to be doing is looking seriously at our, our power system and taking most of these things back under public control. Um, if we want to be able to provide people electricity and like, you know, this is something that Matt Huber notes, um, people sh- should definitely be reading if they haven't already, um, you know, is that like, if like the, the ecological movements plan is to effectively electrify everything, right. Um, you know, to move off of fossil fuels for transportation, to get rid of gas ranges at, in your home, things like that. Um, then we really need to start taking seriously the question of energy production and power production um, and trying to wrestle that away from private interests. Because if our plan is to basically set up everything on needing electricity, then it's going to be very important as to where that electricity is coming from and who owns that. Um, so there's been that. And there's also been, you know, really sustained movements like the, the Texas Climate Jobs Project, which is offshoot of the AFL-CIO here. Um, you know, to really start pushing, you know, kind of Green New Deal policies with a focus on labor. Um, but I think, you know, I think they're doing great work. But it's like this is one of those kind of, you know, sounding the alarm uh, to like the left is that like this is a, a call that needs to be answered. And um, I'd love to talk a little bit about what's going on in, in the oil industry in a second, because I think that that's a really yeah. important bit here. Um, yeah, well, that, that's that, that's where I was going to go go next because there's there's a call that needs to be answered about a labor led, uh, you know, climate transition, but also there's a call that needs to be answered for workers who are being mm-hmm. who are being abused right now in the oil industry, and mm-hmm. they need to be and 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 they need to be the labor leading the climate transition, and so there are multiple ways that that we can begin uh, making these subset of workers making their lives better but using the making of their lives better to make everybody's life better by leading uh, by by putting them at the front of this climate transition so talk to us about the attacks that oil yeah. workers are under in um in, in Texas right now i mean it's it's been sustained protracted warfare and i'll just say up at the at the top that one of the things that is tough with doing labor organizing in that industry is that you know there is this kind of ideology that like it's a boom and bust cycle, you know, some, mm. you know, you're a tough guy and like you have to ride the waves when they're, you know, going and, yeah. um, you know, hunker down when, when they're not right. Um, and, you know, obviously that's BS because these companies make incredible amounts of, of profit, but that's just like a, a hurdle that's worth remembering here. But, um, you know, there's, there's two stories here. It's the COVID pandemic um, and how that affected the industry and then what's happening today. So, you know, um, I, I bring up the COVID pandemic, one, because it has massive effects on the oil industry today. Um, but two, it actually was a bit of a preview of like a post oil future or like a, a future where like the market for oil is not as strong. Um, and, and what ended up happening? Conservative estimate, probably, but over 60,000 oil and gas uh, jobs were lost. The vast majority of those were people who work in the oil fields or produce the machinery needed for extraction, et cetera. Like these are the people who are like doing the actual labor of it, not folks, yeah. you know, hanging out in Houston, and Dallas. Um, and while this is happening, while all these people are losing their jobs, being thrown into this absolute failure, by the way, of like government policy and helping out workers in the COVID pandemic, um, the oil gas industry was pocketing billions and billions of dollars in uh, tax handouts. Uh, National um, oil, um, 
Barco received $591 million in tax benefits, and they, fi- um, and they fired 22% of their workforce, despite getting all these kind of benefits. And by the way, I just wanted to note here, um, this is one of those things where I, I really appreciate my editor. He made the, the piece really you know, clean and, and concise. But like I had 10 other ones. Like I did not note them because they were like the <laughs> exception. It was like, I, you know, <laughs> that was right. the rule, frankly. Um, you know, but, you know, not only um, are you are you seeing uh, did you see that that effectively like once, you know, times got hard for the oil industry, the first people who got punished, the first people who felt the brunt of it were workers. Um, you also have seen um, a really frightening example in like today with high gas prices. And luckily, it seems like they're coming down a bit. But, um, you know, obviously you know, the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine plays a big role, supply chain issues, but also the fact that they fired a bunch of their workforce and they can't replace those people plays a huge part in it. Um, and two, this is just like a thing to remember, like when you're coming up against the oil industry is that this is an entrenched, powerful, powerful industry that has a lot of capital behind it. And, you know, these guys don't just write them checks, you know, out, out of like the sweetness of their heart. They expect to get a return on it. And what right. happened when the oil and gas industry was getting all these profits from high gas prices over the past six months? They took that money and they paid off shareholders in the form of dividends. They didn't invest in production. So, like, drop the climate change stuff for a second. You know, Um, we do have a society in this country that still runs on, you know, oil. So we need that. Like, it's socially necessary at this moment in time for us to have affordable gasoline so that people can get to work and live their lives. And, you know, food gets on the shelves, et cetera. Right. So, like, this is a moment where, like a very clear moment of where you can see like the private industry is just absolutely failing. One is failing over, you know, uh, the question of climate change, but two here, this is something that like we need in this current moment and they're unable to produce it because they're much more interested um, in shoring up their financial position. So the next time that there's a downturn, uh, they, uh, they will get, um, you know, people know that they'll get paid on the other side of it. Um, so all that's going on, um, you know, in, in, in Texas. And then I also noted, you know, if that's all you know, not depressing enough, there's been a protracted war on unions in Texas, mm-hmm. um, most notably um, in Beaumont, which I believe you all have talked about on the show. Um, USW. Um, excuse me. Someone's calling me. Um, oh, no, you're US, <laughs> USW, a local uh, 13, 243, two, 243, um, went on a 10 month experience, a 10 month lockout. Um, and it was extremely devastating uh, to the union. They ended up having to take a, effectively a very, very bad deal um, because ExxonMobil sort of recognized that they can sit these things out and they can sort of weaken and negotiate mm-hmm. down um, union contracts in the industry. Um, there was a really big um, decertification campaign, which they barely eked out a victory. Undoubtedly, by the way, I know we should say allegedly or whatever, but as you know, to be... Right. Truthful, but undoubtedly, <laughs> you know, ExxonMobil is playing a role in trying to push these uh, these decertification campaigns. And that's just one example. It's happening all across the state. So, you know, to go from the, like that's the picture of Texas right now in that industry. Um, it's very worrying, especially if you are somebody who believes in something like a just transition or like a Bernie Sanders style, like Green New Deal policy. Keep plank of that was getting buy-in and leadership from the union movement. Um, And what we're seeing right now is all those workers are under assault um, and their position is being weakened. And this is a moment when we really need to be showing up for them today. 
Um, and I just wanted to to note, like, this is something that is, I think, really important, particularly for the left and like the, the socialist DSA uh, left, is that, I mean, I remember when Bernie Sanders came out with his Green New Deal policy and uh, reading it through and just being absolutely ecstatic because I thought it was phenomenal. And I thought that mm-hmm. particularly the just transition was a phenomenal policy. Um, and it is. And it's something that we should uphold and, and push. Um, but over the past couple of years, especially post, you know, Bernie 2020, I've oftentimes felt where people on like the environmental left just say, well, yeah, well, we support just transition. Right. And like that's the closing of the book on like on the issue. And it's like, well, no, the just transition has to be an actual uh, commitment. And, you know, I was talking um, to a friend, uh, Ryan Pollock, who's IBW, a lead organizer here in Austin. Um, and he, I think he we said, met him at Labor Notes, actually. <laughs> he's a good dude. A very good dude. That's, I'm happy to hear that. Um, but he said, you know, it's not enough for people to say that this is what it could, that this is what could happen, that this is going to be here in the future. It's got to be tangible or else nobody's going to believe you. And like, that's like from like the labor politics to the climate politics, this is just a general point that I think that our side needs to wrap our heads around a bit too, is that, you know, it's not enough just to have like good policies and the right, you know, print out on, you know, on, on the issues you have to convince people that this is something that one can happen and that you can deliver um, right. for them. And I think that the, you know, the way you open up that door is showing up for them in these very, very clear fights where the stakes are clear as day, especially for anybody who claims to be a unionist or a, you know, or a socialist or a progressive, et cetera. Well, now, so all, all of these attacks on, on union workers, on, on oil workers and, and mm. union workers who are oil workers, you know, it reminds me of the, the months long, anti-Hillary campaign from the right when she came out with her comments saying that we're going to put coal miners out of jobs. Um, And, and, you know, all of this posturing for coal miners by the right saying that we're going to protect you, we're going to protect your jobs and and your way of life and and, and all this stuff. And so so I can only imagine that you've got a clip uh, ready for us right now of Greg Abbott and all these other Texas Republicans um, standing up for these oil workers and these oil workers who who are unionists. Right. I mean, that's the that's the real irony of of all of this is that, you know, when it comes to actually protecting their wages and, uh, um, you know, protecting their unions and all that, like you get crickets um, from the GOP. And I think that it's worthwhile to point out the hypocrisy. But then the point is that then like. Well, then it's an easy game for us. If we don't have right. to outmessage the Republicans, right. uh, we can we can be doing that. And the problem is, is that, you know, I, I think that, like, there's a lot of really dedicated people in, in the movement, but it's not it's not centralized at this moment. You get what I mean? Like, there's just like a lot of different interests out there and people advocating for a Green New Deal, for climate change um, policies. And, you know, what you get more than anything is people pointing to work in the renewable industry. And I don't think I need to, you know, break it down too much for y'all, but that is not a good industry right now for workers. Right. It's highly ununionized. They don't pay very well. And also compared to, um, a lot of other power production systems, like for example, nuclear, um, it's not permanent in the in the terms right. of uh, in, in the case of solar, in particular, because you just go in there and you install the panel and then you roll out. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those guys are who 
might do that or might be asked to do that, even if they are maybe union workers doing something on the side or something like that, you know, they're being asked to drive like three, four hours to do, you know, two days work and that's sort of it, right? It's not like a locally rooted um, industry. And that doesn't mean that like, you know, the technology is like dirty or shouldn't be uh, pursued, but there is this kind of like, oh, we have a halo because it's, you know, renewable energy. And yeah, you know, so when, if you're a guy who's working, you know, in oil and gas, which again, I also want to remind people to not to valorize it too much. It does pay, you know, pretty well for some folks, but it's right with, you know, serious Mm -hmm. workers violations. It's extremely um, insecure work for a lot of people. It's extremely dangerous. um, And like that system needs to be improved dramatically. But like, you can't tell somebody who has been making good money doing that kind of work, you know, to start working $18 an hour jobs doing, you know, residential solar as, as a solution. Right. Um, And, 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 you know, you're, you're talking about, it from from a worker's angle, and th- and that's really important. And I think that that um, if I'm remembering right, Energy Alabama uh, and on and off sponsor of the program is a um, an Alabama renewable nonprofit, and they um, and and they have done some 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 work on exposing some solar contractors. Mm, uh, you know, bad labor practices, which we're very appreciative of them for. They've yeah. donated to the mine worker strike fund. Yeah, uh, they were say, able they to get here for, for the miners. Yes. And they've been able to get actually the Sierra Club to also make a donation to the mine worker strike. Wow. fund. So 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 the folks at Energy Alabama love them, appreciate them and and think that they are there. Not only is their heart in the right place, but I think that they're going in, in a good direction. But you're, you're talking about this. In the article, the model for building green power also relies heavily on tax credits um, mm. for uh, residential and and also commercial solar, pulling money out of public coffers and directing them to capitalists. Um, mm-hmm. And as Matt Huber and Fred Stafford, Stafford argued, this creates an absurd choice. Either public ownership, because if the TVA builds solar panels, the TVA doesn't get those tax credits. So the TVA does not get that subsidy. And price so either you're going to have public ownership and pricier energy or you're going to have private ownership and cheaper energy. And so what the TVA actually does is it gets these small uh uh you know small consumers or um or companies to build TVA that it buys the power from. But who's the people mm-hmm. making the money from that? And who's the people making the decisions? It's capitalists. It's not us. It's not the public-owned TVA. And and when I saw that the TVA does not get the same subsidies and they cannot offer solar power for the same price that a local capitalist can. They're barred from doing it. It's insane. Right. That's and, crazy. And that's, that's that's a federal carve out for the industry is that um, the public sector cannot compete with private um, solar power. Right. And that's yeah, exactly. Like that's just an extremely dangerous precedent and it's unnecessary. Um, you know, to, to be setting that, 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 that up. And like, this is exactly like, um, you know, the point that I've been trying to, to get is like, you know, people sometimes have, have gotten mad at me, you know, accusing me of now shilling for the oil industry, which is just ridiculous. Um, uh, or being against like solar and wind. I'm not. Um, but I am against importing the same kind of neoliberal model into, um, you know, the way that we want to power society in the future, especially when we do have this great opportunity to do something different. Um, Yeah, it's it's 
it's extremely frustrating. And, uh, you know, the, the way that I've been phrasing is that like, you know, for a long time, like the slogan on the, the left was like, believe the scientists. And then, um, and then it was like climate action now. And I hate to be, you know, this guy, but it's like, you know, it actually also does really matter what that action looks like because there yes. is a neoliberal anti-worker way of doing it. I'm sorry to say it, but like we saw that, for example, in France, um, yeah. where they basically put, you know, increasing gas taxes on workers. I mean, you're putting the costs of this, you know, industry that has damaged the planet um, and the kind of cleanup or, um, you know, the, the, the cost of that on workers. And two, it makes this absurd calculation that I think Huber lays out really well in, in his books, uh, in his book, uh, Climate Change is Class War, and also in some pieces he's written um, at Jacobin and Catalyst, is that, you know, there's also this kind of neoliberal fascination with market uh, with market prices, where it's like if we get the right price uh, for electricity and, and gasoline, then these systems will, you know, sort of regulate it and fix themselves. And so our friends like that, it ain't that easy. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really weird um, situation that we're in right now because there is a significant investment in in wind and solar from, you know, the private sector. And we don't want to set up a system where we're, we're relying on the same kinds of, of people, frankly, um, you know, when we don't have to go down that path and we could build something that works better for people. Yeah, I think that's so important that. We're, we're going to go through energy transition. That's happening. It's going to mm-hmm. continue to happen. But do we want to be stuck in this situation where the public depends upon energy, the environment mm-hmm. will be impacted by this energy, but a handful of private interests are actually in charge, right. who own it, who control it, um, who profit from it. And, and I think that's that's the rub that you know a lot of the conversations miss. It's oil is bad for the planet and for the climate. Yes, that's true. But it's not so much... the. I mean, oil is not sentient, right? I mean, it's owned by human beings. <laughs> right, and yeah. It's, it's the private ownership of our ener- energy system and the private ownership of the profits that come from that um, and the power that they have over it. The power they have over our power. I mean, that's that's... That's the fucking problem. Uh, <laughs> and I think there is a way to address this in in a different path forward of – and I say different, but really harken back to the TVA as an mm-hmm. example. I like that you threw that in there uh, because we do need large-scale public power. Right. Uh, and we need to ensure – we need to be able to go in good faith to folks who are coal miners or who are uh, working on oil wells and say, we're not going to take your jobs. You're going to have jobs that will actually be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should suffer no d- uh, drop in your working conditions. You should not suffer a drop in your pay. Uh, you should be able to have a good union job moving forward. Uh, so, I, you know, at that – and we see that from time to time when we talk about the coal miner strike and folks will just be like, oh, well, you know, who, who gives a shit? They should just find a different mm-hmm. job. Uh, coal's going away. Well, that's not the answer. Uh, it's certainly not the answer if you're one of those miners, uh, but it's really not the answer for any of us. And like, I mean, I totally agree. And like in the moral cases there. Right. And like, there's, there's two quick aspects. Like there's the moral case. It's like, 
I don't know, not to get too rosy eyed about this, but like, like, again, let's if we imagined that, you know, for a second where it wasn't um, true that, you know, continuing to burn off fossil fuels was like harming the planet. Right. These workers would be celebrated as the people who keep the lights on and like do like right. the most dangerous and necessary labor. Um, and, I, you know, I think that, you know, also having that respect is like, yes, the system is messed up. We want to move to using different kind of materials to power society. But like, these people do incredibly socially necessary labor. Right. So that's like the moral point. The political point is that a lot of people um, and I think it's probably true in Alabama as it is in you know other places where um, there's these kind of extractive industries, um, you know, they blue collar working class folks, you know, they look at these jobs as like really great ways out. Like if you don't have a lot of other options, like um, and look, it doesn't even matter how true it is. It's like that mythology is just there. And that is, is why it does yeah. hold such a such a you know, it's such a powerful idea to sort of, you know, keep voters in line with like Republican, um, you know, it, it is why like Ted Cruz can do nothing for workers except say he's going to oppose, you know, Green New Deal policies. Right. Um, so what we need to be doing is providing a better vision because we can. Um, and, uh, you know, that could create, you know, a really huge uh, swing in, in politics to our benefit. But those that's that's the political, and the moral case. This is like the technical case, too, that I think oftentimes gets understated and is a huge problem with the NGO um, and even a lot of like, you know, left, um, you know, socialist movement. Um, you know, movements around, you know, climate change, Green New Deal stuff is that these are also workers who have these skills and know how to run a power system and know what is necessary. Um, and you, like we should be wanting them, one, for the moral reason, for the political reason, but also because we actually like really need people with that kind of expertise and skill right. to be mm-hmm. doing these kind of, of jobs in the future. I really like, you know, some of the pushes that we've seen, um, you know, particularly around like nuclear, where it's like there are a lot of one to one. Uh, jobs that you can sort of transition some coal workers into doing, uh, you know, work uh, with with nuclear plants. And that's just one example. Right. Um, you know, people who do power production across the board, like these people have expertise, one, just like on the technical, like mechanical side of like actually producing it. And two of saying this is what a power system needs to look like. And that's been unfortunately very absent, um, I think, in a lot of a lot of the movement, too, where it comes from very well-meaning folks, folks who want to make a better world. But, um, you know, you also sometimes you need to talk to the folks who like know what power production looks like, right. know what that responsibility feels like. If you want to be building plans, that makes sense. And, you know, so unfortunately, I'm no expert on these kind of things. I rely on other folks. Um, and I'm trying to humi- humbly request other people do the same thing, frankly. Right. Um, uh, you know, is that a lot of the plans that we even see from like the left, uh, unfortunately, uh, have pretty um, apparent like fundamental issues with what that system would actually look like in practice. And the only way to get that kind of positive uh, feedback or whatever is to be incorporating uh, the labor movement and the experts into your policymaking instead of people who are coming out of, you know, NGO, the NGO world, which has, you know, a limited horizon in its understandings of a lot of these systems. Yeah. And I think if your theory of change does not involve building worker power, <clears throat> what are you doing? Because, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I just I think that's so important that the workers in these industries absolutely have to be involved in any of this policy discussion. Uh, And the more powerful they are, the better able we all are as a society to take on such a powerful industry. Uh, Because to your point earlier, I mean, the fossil fuel oligarchs 
are, are so powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes well beyond what most of us in most industries would even deal with, the power mm-hmm. that they have on a, on a truly global level. Right. These are folks who can overthrow governments and have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, if we're not actually building power at the point of production, uh, we're already, you know, outgunned and outmanned. No, because that's the only force that's going to be able to, you know, to to shift them is like if the you know oil and gas workers are sort of shutting down production, for example, um, because we don't have the money to beat those guys. And unless we have a political, um, you know, power to do that, um, you know, we'll be I mean, you know, Biden's been pretty whiny. I mean, I love the point that you are making. And I, I know that it was a call from USW two in the Beaumont um lockout is that the federal government should do no contracts with them um, until they end the lockout. Right. And, you know, Biden sort of, you know, forgets and, and moves on, but like in that context, then it's like, okay, well, the only thing we can do is leverage, leverage that power because we do need to decarbonize fast. Um, and, and to meet that challenge, we need to have the most powerful weapon in our arsenal, which is, you know, labor power. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do just want to say too, that like there has been a, really significant shift i think um in in one like a lot of like labor movement folks and like labor movement affiliated organizations in trying to push for these kind of policies which i think is very mm-hmm. encouraging i also think as critical as i am of like the ngo left that they have started um to incorporate like calls for you know things like worker justice but i'd like that stuff to get a little bit more concrete than like you know because they call for justice for a lot of things you know (laughs) and and i don't doubt their sincerity but it's just uh you know it it needs to be a bit more concrete um if we want to actually utilize that that power and effort yep absolutely uh david griscom the article is the limits of uh, liberal climate policy in Jacobin magazine. Uh, we appreciate your time, David. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, make sure that you hit on before you headed out? No, do um, check out the article and you can always listen to me and Matt talking about the stuff on left reckoning. And I really appreciate, right. uh, I always really appreciate being on here with y'all. The Valley labor report does incredible work. Um, I always uh, rep my, uh, my hat proudly y'all. Thanks. We really we really appreciate <laughs> it. And uh, by the way, I really dug the uh, Lenin letter to American workers video. Oh, thank you. Recently. That was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really fascinating one. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I, I enjoyed y'all's uh, uh, y'all's tribute to uh, Michael Brooks, both on Left Reckoning and on the Majority Report. Um, we actually right after his passing, it motivated me to do a big special episode on Bolivia. Uh, we hired some translators. We talked to a 30 year coca grower, the president wow. of the largest labor, uh, of the Labor Federation in the largest city in Bolivia about the coup, about labor's response to the coup. We talked to some um some academics, uh, some reporters from Bolivia uh, did a big thing about it. Uh, spent a lot of money. <laughs> spent a lot of money doing it, but I think it was worth it. <laughs> totally. Oh, that's so. really wonderful to hear y'all. Yep. All right, friends. All right. We'll take care. Thanks All right, brother. Again. Yep. Have a good one. Uh, yeah, like like we said, that was David Griscom. You can read his article in Jacobin Magazine, The Limits of Liberal Climate Policy. Uh, just want to plug before we head out, the United Mine Workers uh, that are striking here in Alabama have a school supply drive. They've got a school supply drive. I'm going to drop it in the chat in uh, Facebook and YouTube, and you can make sure you... 
make sure you donate if you've got some uh, uh, if you've got some some extra money. Uh, they would appreciate it. We want to make sure that their kids have uh, just as good school supplies as the Scabs kids. So, want to make sure that we're able to send them to school here in the fall with everything that they need. Um, also wanted to uh, read some texts that we got during the show. We got one text from an 860 area code. said, my granddaughter's middle school drama club is, requi- is required to use Disney-owned shows. She lobbied for and won Newsies. She wanted to have a oh, show. Oh, sweet. Yeah, what is Newsies? Do you know what Newsies yeah, is? Yeah, Newsies is a, a musical from back in the day, I think. Uh, gosh, Christian Bale may have been the the main star, like a very very young Christian Bale. But yeah, it's about uh, news the paper boys who went on strike. Ah, yeah, very cool. Well, she wanted to have a show that had a more meaningful message than princesses that needed saving. Very good. Uh, when she's with me, we watch uh, the Valley Labor Report, Majority Report, the Young Turts, etc. Proud to see that my Yankee socialist ways are having some impact on her thinking because her grandpa is an oath keeper. Holy shit! And her father, while not as ra- radical, is a very conservative Republican. God, an oath keeper! Wow, that's Looney Tunes. But uh, uh, glad she's listening. Uh, we appreciate yeah. we appreciate your support and her support. And um, maybe you can send us like a clip of uh, her doing the newsies thing. If, yeah. if you want, that would be cool. We'd, so love to, we'd love to play that. It's loosely based on the uh, Newsboys strike of 1899 up in New York City. Uh, so, okay. not a lot of Disney pro union content out there, <laughs> uh, but that's one of them. So yeah, that's, that's really awesome. Cool. Got a text from a 309 area code. Um, Austin from Huntsville here just wanted to take a moment and boost the week of action events starting in Atlanta today, led by Defend the Atlanta Forest and Stop Cop City Movement. Solidarity. Brassfield and Gorey, the general contractor for the Atlanta Police Foundation's Cop City Project, has an office located right here in Huntsville. Activists have already coerced former prime contractor Reeves Young into dropping their contract with the APF, hoping to see Brassfield and Gorey do the same. That would be pretty cool. We'll have to check that out. Uh, The week of action, could you tell me again what that what the title was like or what the, what yeah. the organization uh, just wanted to take a movement and boost the week of action events starting in Atlanta today led by defend the Atlanta forest okay and the stop cop city movement so maybe folks should check Found that it. out cool sounds cool yeah uh, and that's going to be it for us today, folks. We appreciate your time. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can pre-order our new shirts. Let's show them it on the stream one more time. Uh, pre-order the shirts that say "Join a Union" or "The Boss Will Get You." You can buy our hats. You can give us money all at tvlr.fm. Become a patron at patreon.com/slash The Valley Labor Report. Um, follow us everywhere you follow things. And until next week, all power. To the workers. Oh wait, what? No, wait. One more thing. I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to read uh, this from from the Facebook chat. What's up, guys? From Austin. Um, I remember you talking about being a stagehand, Adam. When talking to me, never knew it was a union. I love that. Austin is uh, one of your students over there in Elkmont. So yeah, former student, just yeah. graduated. So uh, going to be sending him a message today, and uh, maybe point him in the right direction of some good labor work. Yep. All right. See you, folks, later. 